Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, the world economy has undergone massive transformation with COVID-19. There's going to be an even bigger upheaval as climate change takes hold. So how do we prepare for the economic changes that that's going to bring about? The way of coping with the virus emergency has been unprecedented levels of government intervention. Does that mean the only way to a greener economy is through public funding? Or can the private sector carry the can? And who manages the transition process? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, we don't know what the long-term structural change is going to be after COVID-19, but we do know that in the short term, it has helped IT firms and decimated tourism and hospitality. We know, for example, in the UK, for the three months to September, the hours worked in accommodation and food were 36% lower than the same period a year before, and that was supposedly after we came out of lockdown. But no change for the public sector and only 2% down for finance. It's not affecting those guys at all. But we do know we need to transition transition the global economy to adapt for climate change and that is going to be an even bigger task and hopefully uh, we're going to stop it getting worse than it needs to be so who manages the transition of an economy for things like this and things like climate change because when i think of an economy transitioning steve i think of margaret thatcher closing down iron and steel and manufacturing shifting from state run to private industries crushing unions and that was a time when we saw unemployment of course rising up to 12% that's i guess that's the hands off approach you could call it that and and maybe that's the way to do it. You have short to when you've got a, a big shift in uh, in an economy and the, how people are employed and the sorts of jobs they're employed in. Maybe let the economy determine where the gaps are, because if the government gets too involved, you get back to central planning and, and politicians picking the winners, which is never a good outcome. So, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, two minds on this as to which is the best way genuinely, which is the best way forwards. Well, it depends on what the actual crisis is, because uh, if you have uh, a financial crisis, then the government is the only institution which can produce money without having to make a profit from it. And you therefore have the government doing the rescue there. It's, it, it's, it's, we, when we talk about a crisis, something that screwed up the market system, we have a vision of a market system behaving perfectly and being able to self-regulate and so on. And then when we call a crisis, it's only when that absolutely fails to be the truth. Mm. And that was certainly the case with COVID. And it, we, we had governments at the time which were committed to austerity. It was a global tendency to try to cut back on government spending. And then, bang, this crisis hits. And in the middle of that, all these governments suddenly you know, were worried about taxpayers' money, which, of course, it's not, um, suddenly started turning on the, the, the government money creation capacity, which they had. We had all these schemes. The, the, I think it was called the Job Keeper in Australia and various things like that, the uh, furlough scheme in the UK. Uh, and without those, you would, you, would, you would have had a collapse of the private system because there was nothing... They had people with you know, financial commitments entered into before COVID hit, uh, and then suddenly it's just like a 36% fall. That's actually quite modest, I think, uh, for the entertainment and, and yeah. uh, 
Service, uh, uh, services. Well, that was that was that was the, that the months after the uh, after the lockdown had finished. That's why. So that was yeah, you know, and yeah. that included the yeah. eat out to help out scheme and all that sort of stuff. So even so, yeah. even with all that sort of stuff, it was still thirty six percent down. But there's a big difference, isn't there, between the uh, you know the, the financial crisis because the financial crisis in the way was an artificially created thing. Mankind created the finance system. Uh, mankind didn't create this virus. So this is more of an existential threat. Yeah, the funny thing is, this is the, I mean, neoclassical economics has a theory of uh, what causes the business cycle that is actually blames it all on things outside the economy. Exogenous shocks are mm. supposed to be shocks, what they call preferences and, and, and technology. Uh, so like unexpected innovations and unexpected people changing from, uh, uh, you know, to wanting to have holes in their genes. Uh, and, and that's supposed to explain what causes fluctuations in the in the economy. Uh, in reality, the vast majority of the, of the ups and downs of the economy are caused by its own internal dynamics, particularly the yeah. financial system. Agreed. This this time, it actually is something that's come from, in a sense, outside yeah. the economy. And you can you can blame that COVID occurred on the sheer scale of human pressure on the biosphere, which is certainly the economy's fault. But in terms of the shock itself, it emanated from a medical cause, not from a, an economic or financial one. But without, virtually without fail, when these things hit, the market system fails and something else has to, has to fill the gap and that something else is the government. And unfortunately, we have an ideology. If I think of a pandemic, uh, I think the real pandemic is the belief in, in mainstream economic theory. And that pandemic means that we, we, we fall back into the default position that there should be very little government intervention uh, until the next crisis comes along. When, of course, we're not prepared for it because, duh, there wasn't enough government intervention. Yeah. And then, of course, we, we, we start to pull back as well. So the longer we know, the longer this threat goes on, uh, the less government money there will be because we're already seeing people asking the questions about, well, where's this money going to come from? So Rishi Sunak, for example, tries to be a bit more cagey with money. Then we get a second wave and he goes, OK, we're going to start the furlough scheme again. But he was really trying to pull back because of that fear. Because, you know, money is limited and we've got to pay this back. And that was the very much the philosophy and very much the, the, the philosophy in mainstream society as well. How are we going to, how many times you had people saying, how are we going to pay for all of this? And it's a false fantasy. This is, a, you know, again, this mm. is why the, uh, the, the insights of modern monetary theory are so important because the government's a money producing system and it produces money by creating, running a deficit and the deficit creates the reserves that are used to buy the bonds. Uh, it, it is not being, that lack of awareness is probably one of our major enemies. And again, that is something which has come out of mainstream economic thinking. But um, so, but the, but, but yeah, with, the hmm? counter argument, though, to modern, modern monetary theory is that if you create too much money, you're going to get inflation. But that is not good. But that only happens, of course, if you've got uh, if you if you've got full employment, you've got maximum productive capacity. We're a long way which off. Which we're nowhere near. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's, so that and isn't an issue this time. And that's part of the, again, modern monetary theory accepts that. Uh, and uh, so we, we, we are, we're imposing constraints that don't have to be composed, uh, imposed and in fact make our response to things like this worse. And which is why I think it, I, I really prefer people to start thinking about COVID like I think about World War II. Uh, and, and that was something where the government ran deficits in the American case of 30% of GDP and the British case, 40% of GDP. And the sky didn't fall in. In fact, the things falling out of the sky got to be less because there were British planes and American planes fighting off the German bombers. So it, it is, it, again, it's our ideology that trips us up here. 
but in, in the transition itself, uh, you have to have something which can take the place of the cash flows the market system normally provides. And that's what the furlough scheme and so on did. And then you take them away. If the crisis is still there, you fall back into the same trap once more. Yeah, and of course, that GDP is being held by all that government spending as well. I mean, if you pulled out the government spending, your GDP would, uh, would fall in a hole. Yeah, yeah. And it's... You know, so I, I think we have an, an enormous problem in coping with this because we've got an ideology that leads us to n- not be prepared for events yeah. like this, which nonetheless, despite not being prepared for them, we're also aware they're likely to happen. So the awareness that there was going to be a pandemic is something which was uh, for, first uh, made popular by, um, I think it's Laurie Garrett, with a book called The Coming Plague, written back in 1994-95. And we, we know that the American government, particularly with, with long-relived institutions like the Centre for Disease Control, uh, established pandemic management uh, units, pandemic planning units, and you, you have to have that long-term perspective. But they, of course, fall prey to the whole focus upon uh, austerity mm. and, and short-term budgets. Yeah. And then when the crisis comes along, we're not prepared at all. The ironic thing is, I think there was a WHO study a couple of years ago saying the two most prepared countries in the world for a pandemic were the UK and America. Really? Really? (laughs) This certainly wasn't the case, was it? Uh, So that's been completely debunked. So uh, on the the medical research, I mean, the the issue in the the UK uh, as well, similar story here, you know, basically the focus for medical research shifted from, I think, from about the 1980s or 90s to to being research which could be commercialised. So there's not a great deal of commercial value in in a pandemic, but uh, for stuff that you can sell lots of drugs for over a long period of time, that can easily be commercialised. So that became the focus of public money was acting acting as seed money for uh, for commercial enterprises, which didn't help at all. Yeah, and I I, I hope one thing which gets learned by this crisis and hopefully ingrained to some extent because I think you need to be traumatised before humans learn in any sustainable way in terms of how they set up their social institutions is that uh, we we have to have um, institutions which are there for crises that are not going to be profitable to, to address uh, in the short term. And so, you know, the, the companies like Pfizer is going to make a large amount of money out of this crisis, uh, but... It, it isn't. It is. It's only because they can sell the uh, the the vaccines they're producing to governments and distribute them for free. If they're not distributed for free, we won't get rid of the virus. So it's one of these cases where you, you simply know there is no market solution, and that we have to get past this this real you know, intellectual pandemic of believing that that there's such a thing as a self-regulating, uh, always viable, always vibrant market economy. There simply isn't. And yet Pfizer, you know, are going to be producing it presumably under license. I mean, what about all those other companies that could be producing it if they gave away? Gave away their IP, and uh, you know, are we? Is is the uh, is the the economic system that we operate under going to control the distribution of a virus that could you know that it, that is going to help the global economy uh, to uh, to get back to normal? Yeah, well, we can't let that happen. I mean, you, if you if you had uh, if the virus if, if the if the vaccine is charged for, uh, then there are people who can't afford it. Period. And because people can't afford mm. it, there's a reservoir for the virus which will come out again. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's. It, and, and again, we're going to face the same thing multiple times in the in the coming decades because the the pressure we're putting on the on the uh, biosphere is so great that we're butting up against 
all sorts of other animals which can have other pathogens. And we're saying, hey, why don't you move across to our species? There's many more of us and we reproduce much, much more rapidly. All the other ones are declining. Why not come and invade us? It's virtually an invitation. So- did it surprise you that we were so badly prepared for this, not just in terms of the, the medical response, but the economic response? Because we knew at some point something like this was was going to happen. And yet, you know, all the plans that were, were, were put into place were pretty much on the off the hoof. You know, we there was no sort of like, yeah, well, here's the uh, the oven bake solution uh, that Rishi Sunak can, uh, can, can press the go button on. And yet we knew at some point something like this was going to happen. Well, that's why you have to have, to have long, long-lived institutions that, that maintain this knowledge mm. despite the short-term perspective of our political and economic system. And we don't have that. We, we, we have things like the Centre for Disease Control. But, of course, their budget in turn is determined by short-term politicians. And in 2018, I believe it was, Trump shut down or drastically cut the funding for the pandemic unit. And his argument was we can yeah. always rehire these people later. I'm sorry, later doesn't work when you have a virus which will double its number of cases every two or three days. And and that is, you know, we, we have a, a linear way of thinking in an exponential world. So are countries like uh, China and other countries in Asia, have they handled this better? I mean, obviously, they had the experience of SARS, but are they also able to apply more of a, an authoritarian approach? So we saw, you know, a TV documentary early on in this pandemic where we saw uh, front doors being welded shut in apartment blocks in China because there were too many infected people in there that they didn't want to get out. So the sort of stuff, whether that's true or not, the sort of stuff we certainly wouldn't get away with uh, in uh, you know in the West. So is that is that part of it? Because obviously you know, that that's a, that, that is a problem, isn't it? If the only way for us to cope with this sort of thing is a more authoritarian regime, people in the West are just not going to buy it. Yeah, and that, I think that's what you're seeing with the chaos in America, because the ideology of liber of, of, of uh, freedom. Or as I prefer to pronounce mm. it, free dumb, uh, is so ingrained that people think any any restriction on their behaviour is is an assault on civil liberties, such as, for example, being told you've got to drive on the left hand side of the road, or the right, depending on the country you're in. You decide, oh, that's that's a restriction on my freedom. Bang. Uh, so so we we have this schizophrenia. Mm. We know there are rules. We know there are regulations. If we breach them in some parts of our lives, we cause absolute chaos and nobody, I don't think you're ever going to see anybody getting into defence or a head-on collision of saying that I, it, it was restricting my civil liberties to keep me on one side of the road. Um, but that, that thinking got in the way of the American response to coronavirus, whereas because there is a, a legacy from what Marx called the, uh, the Asiatic mode of production, uh, which was dominated by, because monsoons and heavy rainfalls that rule over in Asia, you have to have irrigation systems, otherwise the water gets lost uh, or, 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 or to causes you know, great disruption. So you had a very strong central state, and that goes right back to the feudal days. It persists through to today. That didn't apply, obviously, in the UK. You just wait for the water to let, let enough drizzle down to, to, to uh, wet your plants sufficiently. Uh, but the, the, the legacy of the Asiatic mode of production and the irrigation economies means that they are more inclined to follow central instructions because they have worked in the past and they will work in the future. And they worked extremely well uh, with this virus. Mm. So, so we could be finding ourselves going back to more of a mixed economy. Is that, uh, do you think that might be the, up, the upshot of this? Because that's what I grew up in in England. It was, you know, what we, we, we called it a mixed economy. And now it obviously has shifted very much more towards uh, capitalism, you know, in a, in a stronger force. We've obviously privatized a great deal of industry since Margaret Thatcher 
Are we going to swing back to how we were perhaps in the 70s? I think that, Which, I mean, the world wasn't a particularly rosy place in the 1970s, mind you. Well, they're pretty rosy in the 60s and 50s. And, and this, mm. I mean, th- this is the, the ironic thing. We certainly had a lower standard of living in the sense that there was, you know, lower quality technology. Um, uh, mm. but, but people were more content in the 50s and 60s because they had less of a financial burden on their backs. And, uh, and you had a, yeah. a fairer distribution of income. You had less income extremities. So, uh, and people were working in jobs in the West, which gave them some sense of, uh, of self-worth, whereas uh, the, the, you can see the attitude with what are called the deplorables. The deplorables used to be called the working class, uh, and they've been decimated by the whole move of production off for, from America to Asia as well uh, for the sake of the profit of the capitalists at the top. So we, we, we've given up. We, we had a mythology of a free market system working perfectly where that mythology leaves out the physical world. And um, in this case, the mm. virus didn't particularly care about the textbooks. So... We do need to get the stage where we have a, a mentality that says there's a role for a central authority as well as a role for a, for a market economy. And in that sense, uh, the China may be too far from most people's tastes on the, on the government side of enforcement. Uh, but in general, the attitude across Asia accepts a lot of the state. And therefore, when the state says you must wear a mask when you catch public transport, people wear masks. Uh, there, mm. You don't have anti-mask demonstrations, which you get in the in, in America. <laughs> which is absolutely crazy, isn't it? But you do realise the moment we start talking about perhaps swinging more towards China and away from America, uh, there will be, uh, you know, people who are perhaps not regular listeners to this podcast gang. Oh, there we go. There's Steve Keen, bloody communist, uh, trying to uh, destroy capitalism again. But look, there is a hypocrisy, isn't there? That when, there's a, uh, when a, a country, an individual country, goes through a crisis and needs to be bailed out by the IMF, they follow. Mm. The, what they call the Washington Consensus, this thing devised in 1989, which is pretty full on. You know, it's it's basically a checklist of what they'll do. Privatization of state enterprises, deregulation of anything that restricts entry into a market, no large fiscal deficits relative to the GDP, liberalization of trade imports and foreign direct inv- investment. I mean, the world is in, in a crisis right now, and we are doing the complete opposite. We're rolling back on a lot of this. So uh, when there's a crisis... For everyone, and particularly a crisis in the West, we do exactly the opposite of what we're expecting developing nations to do when they hit a liquidity crisis. Yeah, and uh, we're now getting a taste for what that means because mm. it means that you know funda- fundamental services collapse, social discord increases, and uh, you know, like in Indonesia, I think the World Bank is a banned entity these days. You, they've they've had enough of World Bank and IMF advice about what to do in a crisis because without fail, it's made a lot of those who are suffering from the crisis worse. So I, I'm, I'm hoping there'll be a shift in ideology coming out of out of the. Um, uh, the experience with the with COVID nineteen, but the trouble is the, the American situation is so so confusing, so fraught um, that you're going to get people who are at the extreme free market libertarian side uh, beginning probably even more extreme, despite the disastrous performance America's had on the virus. Well, it is bizarre, isn't it? That's you know, there's some things that are we, we just uh, uh, hold as a core to that uh, to that neoliberal approach, which is keeping companies private we haven't nationalized the railways in the uk but we're bailing them out so we privatized them all uh, and you know they they ran a healthy profit for themselves well sometimes and now they're struggling we're we're, we're we're keeping them private but we're giving them money surely it would be time to bring them back into public hands the same with airlines just as we did with the banks during the global financial crisis we can always sell them again but bailing out private enterprises 
is, uh, is, is surely worse, isn't it? And particularly if we get to a stage where, well, actually they are not going to be viable in the long term. So the government can make that make that call, uh, having you know at least given the company another six months to a year. Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, if the, in terms of the, ra- the railway situation in the UK, of course, there's been strong pressure to go back to nationalised rail because privatised rail has been such a such a failure. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you want to see a museum, if you want to see an old old train in uh, Europe, you need to go to a, a museum in, in mainland Europe or hop on one in, in England. Um, so it's uh, it, it's remarkable how much that ideology has. Well, not remarkable the ideology has failed, but it's such a comical outcome that not only do you have the oldest rolling stock and the most primitive uh, rail system in Europe in the right. UK, most of them are also owned by government-run entities on, on mainland Europe. It's quite, quite yeah. It, it's an increase. That's right. You, you or, that, re- or the, or the- yeah. Or the Hong Kong Transit Authority. So a sort of a quasi-Chinese government body is owning uh, quite a chunk of the railways in Britain as well. But, I mean, my point is we are so wedded to this philosophy mm. that even, you know, when because it is a perfect opportunity to renationalize the railways right now because no one's traveling mm. on them. They're soaking up a lot of public money. The, the, the big question was mm. how are we going to pay for all of this uh, if, we, if, we were to, uh, if we were to nationalize them? Well, we're having to pay for it now. So, uh, but but the philosophy is so wedded towards privatization that mm. even when this opportunity is presented, and this is why, sort of like when you know the, the, today's topic about transition, are we losing the opposition, to, the opportunity to transition here? We are doing a lot of short-term stuff without thinking about how we come out the other end and what's going to be the best place to be. Yeah, and this this is this is the real danger. We we are caught up with truly exponential crises facing a very. Um, flat earth view of how the how the economy and society operates so when when COVID hits the only really effective mechanism is a is a is a you know, top-down uh, national uh, program that says this business can open that one can't everybody has to wear masks uh, you know, distancing must be maintained etc etc um, and yet the, we've set ourselves up with a system which has, has this you know, crazy American freedom idea and freedom without responsibility. And consequently, we have been slaughtered by the virus and the places that believe in freedom and being effective in controlling it and those that have a, a slightly better idea of a interplay between a public and a private sphere. That, strangely enough, does include Australia and New Zealand. Mm. So if we, it does, doesn't it? So if we are, if Pfizer saves the world or somebody else, if it's not them, it'll be somebody else. If we do get a vaccine and life can return to normal, well, then we're, le- we're only left with this slightly bigger problem about uh, what do we do about climate change. And this, the, the, if we've coped with uh, this so badly in terms of a, a transition to a, to a different world, how are we going to transition to a, to a greener economy? Who, who's going to manage that? The UK approach, it seems to be, that... Uh, the government, because they're onto this already, the government is now saying they're going to force firms to report on the impact they're having on the environment. The hope is that investors will shy away from those companies that got a bad track record. So they are mandating these disclosures in whatever form they're, they're going to take. I'm not quite fully sure of what that is, but by 2025, you're going to have to basically say, we're a good company or a bad company. And the hope is that people will say, oh, if you've got a bad track record, we're not going to invest in you. 
but that that's not going to work, is it? I mean, that's uh, no, uh, no, it doesn't work. I mean, it, it's the same. The Austrians are the same attitude to banks. You know, you deregulate them, then let, let the bad ones fail. And if people people won't go to banks that offer high interest rates because they know they're going to fail, garbage. People go to the high interest rates because they reckon they're going to get a profit and, yeah, exactly. and get out. You know, so it's it just this sort of thing doesn't work as a it's a regulatory myth and not a regulatory mechanism. And the same thing for climate change. We are going to we, when we realise that climate change has got the added factor, it's happening everywhere. It's manifested locally and globally. Uh, what people do somewhere else in the world is part of what affects your situation as well as what you do yourselves. And therefore, you, you can't expect a, a, a decentralised system to work out a solution to it. So we have to, we have to accept Mm. Um, some larger degree of central authority than we have done in the past. And in that sense, maybe COVID will, in the aftermath, wake up the West to the madness of having a complete free market ideology uh, in the complex society we actually live in. Yeah, because, I mean, the approach to COVID has been, well, let's pour some money into the market mechanism at the top and uh, let it work itself out. And it seems to be that is very much the government's approach as well. So, yeah, let's uh, let's let the market mechanism work it so people will invest in companies that behave well and not uh, invest in companies that don't behave well. But your point, you know, people will uh, companies that don't behave well, maybe their share price is going to go down. But if it's an old company. They don't care. They they don't need investment. They they can carry on polluting. They can carry on their old ways. In fact, more they're more likely to say, "Well, we'll just sweat the assets we've got. We'll use the old technology uh, because it's going to be harder for us to uh, to raise extra money." Uh, and what do you do with those companies? Do you, do you you can either tax them or somehow get them to reset their business? I don't know. Do we say, "Well, okay, you've got to sell off all your assets, restart your investment program." And maybe then uh, if you have to repurchase those assets, then maybe if you're seen as a, a as a risk and a huge liability, you're going to find it harder to raise cash. But if you don't do that, then they're just going to carry on with their old stuff. And, and that's the exact opposite of what we want them to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my fears about uh, climate change hitting us is we're going to have, have a drastic drop in consumption. And that is, mm. in that sense, SARS is, sorry, COVID has given us a taste of that. Uh, we've had this dr- dramatic fall in uh, people's capacity to go and consume the normal stuff they do, the, the, the media, the, you know, the you know, entertainment, restaurants, uh, any form of face-to-face interactions plunged. And we've had to make up the difference with government spending, which we've done sporadically and, and, and unsuccessfully, not just successfully, but in, insufficiently. And it, it is something which I hope in looking back will say, well, we should have been more prepared. We should have been ready for more government spending. We should have had uh, capacity to produce, particularly you know, it's not only going to be a respiratory illness that travels this broadly, uh, the, the industrial goods that are necessary for respiratory illnesses, rather than outsourcing them to China, which is what was mainly done. Um, so... Mm. Hope it, it, it's 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 a chance that it's we could learn from that trauma before we face the next trauma of climate change. Yeah, and and on that, as you say, it's the question of growth, isn't it? Because because the, the the question is, do we want green growth or do we want degrowth? And uh, you know, if it's the latter, then that's a that's a big learning curve for the population, and, and that's where we start getting accused of being communists again. Uh, so that's why mm. everyone goes to to green growth. Well, what can we do to uh, to to for the economy to carry on the way it is? But doing it in a uh, in a greener way. So, for example, the Climate Financial Risk Forum in the UK 
uh, published a guide this year. It's been touted this week, in fact, by the governor of the Bank of England. Uh, they believe, you know, it is back to this thing that companies are taking risk by ignoring climate change. And the risks are... Uh, tightening energy standards, uh, you know, your company could be, uh, it could impact the value of loans to companies and properties that don't adhere to these standards. So you might find it harder to get a loan if you don't uh, play ball. Changes in the values of goods. So uh, if you don't make electric cars, the cars you do make might be worthless. Stranded assets. So will some of your assets become worthless or insurable because they don't meet uh, environmental standards as they come online? So you're going to have to change your, your, your method of production in a big way. And litigation. Well, that might be the uh, that might be the thing that changes it all. If you fail to mitigate the impacts of climate change, will your shareholders sue you? Um, you know, maybe maybe some of those will have a, a small effect, but I mean, they are pretty piecemeal, aren't they? They're very piecemeal. And I, again, I think all of them are assuming we're starting from a comfortable position. And this, we're not. I mean, this is, the, again, the virus teaches that you don't start from a comfortable position when you have an exponential process that's gone badly wrong. Uh, you, you have to go, you have to attack it in a similarly exponential way. And that when, it, when it looks at the successful uh, shutdowns in Asia, uh, everything which was properly regarded as non-essential was shut down. You, you couldn't, you know, forget restaurants, they, they were shut down. Uh, forget transportation systems, they were shut down. Uh, so, and, and all that was left was you, you allowed essential commodities to be produced, and that really comes down to food, um, water, sanitation, and health services. And right, but then, all those cafe owners, how did they survive? Well, that's the thing. They, they probably, without, without cash flows, they would have gone bankrupt. And that's one reason I said we've got to have effectively a, a coronavirus jubilee. We have to, the state has to provide money to enable people to pay their commitments, uh, whether they, you know, w- without regard to whether it's profitable or not. Because at the moment, uh, if, you, if you can't get a cash flow in through the front door, you are going to fail. And then, of course, your failure will cascade through mm. the economy. Your, your, your failure will mean your landlord can't pay his uh, mortgages, which means the bank can't. Uh, it goes insolvent, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So you have to recognize that when the whole network is shocked by something like COVID, the, the only thing which can keep it going is, is the government with the capacity to create money and enable those cash flows to be commitments right. to be met, uh, despite the absence. So you of give sales. money to everybody then, or do you just say, "Well, okay, we're going to pay your if you've got outstanding bills for rent and things like that." You pick a few, you pick a few factors and say, "We're going to pay that," or do you put money into everyone's bank account? If you put money into everyone's bank account, then there's going to be a whole lot of people who are saying, "Well, I've still got a job, but it's a nurse on the front line. I'm not too happy about it, so I'm going to I'm just going to take the cash." Thanks so much. I'm not quite sure how you manage that balance. Well, not easy, but I think you rely upon people's dedication. So many, I mean, the whole thing about nurses not turning up for work, I'm sorry, they've continued doing it. They're they're driven by a sense Mm. of commitment rather than by a sense of cash. That's Donald Trump thinking, uh, you know, he's the the last person you'd find inside hospital, except as a patient. Uh, So it, we, yeah, we, I think we've completely stuffed ourselves up in terms of our ideology, as we're now finding out, because the ideology works and you're in a, a basically a frontier uh, climate, a frontier economy, which America was 150, 200 years ago. Once you're in a jammed up spaceship economy, as, as uh, James Buchanan put it some time ago, then you have to, one person's uh, actions drastically affect others. Uh, 
collective stuff affects everybody, uh, you simply have to have a coordinated approach. And we've set ourselves very badly for the shift from mm. a completely free market orientation to a coordinated system. The West will do very badly at that. Asia uh, will do probably even better after COVID because it can say, look, our centralised system works. Yeah, and we have, there's been opportunities we've missed for sure, hasn't there? I mean, over the last year, uh, which is not even a year, is it? What is it? My goodness, it's in like uh, seven or eight months that uh, since COVID first broke out, mm. broke out in the West. So the UK government spent £55 billion on the furlough scheme. Basically, people sitting at home waiting for their job to come back, which might never happen, uh, without any sort of transitioning process. You know, we could be doing something to help with a green economy, or we could be saying, well, more people are working at home, and that's a good thing, so maybe we need to install uh, fibre broadband, for example, much faster. So it's uh, OpenReach is spending £1.7 employing everybody to, to run their network. Imagine if the government said, well, OK, let's double that and uh, double the speed of the network rollout because you just need more legs on the, uh, more legs on the ground, more feet on the ground. Um, you know, th- that sort of thing could be done. But no, we just pay the money and people sit at home and, you know, they're, they're not being productive or moving any sort of agenda forwards. It's just we're, we're just biding time. I think in this case, I mean, you have to buy time <clears throat> with a virus. You don't want people doing anything, which is going to cause uh, any mm. any capacity for the virus to spread further. Uh, and we we may find again with when climate change hits, when it becomes so obvious, we've got to stop uh, adding to the level of CO two in the atmosphere, amongst many of the other factors that are involved in climate change. Um, then we're going to want people not to work, not to move, not to travel, but we still want them to stay alive. So we've got to provide cash flows for everybody, and that can't be done. Uh, on a for-profit basis, it has to be the government yeah. doing it. and they have to have a plan. And the problem is everyone has to agree with that plan. So China is, you know, transitioning actually the other way, aren't they, from a, from centralised control to, uh, to to more of a market orientation. I must admit, they're not doing it terribly fast, and they're going to keep that centralised control to the point that nobody really can talk against the roadmap that the government's had, or, or they'll get silenced. We don't do that in the West, so we've got a lot of climate change deniers. So how do you transition to uh, a greener future uh, without a plan that everyone agrees to? That's our biggest stumbling block, isn't and it? And I think that's what's why I say we only learn after a crisis. We're not going to we're not going to be prepared for climate. We are not prepared for climate change. We we actually had effectively fifty years advance warning with the limits to growth studies and and the discovery of. Uh, not the discovery, the proof of the rising levels of carbon dioxide back then uh, with the Keeling curve and so on. We're, we're aware of all this stuff and we've actively suppressed it. Uh, economists have played a major role in, in disparaging uh, those warnings. And now we're walking into it with the economy that economists themselves have preferred to design, which has taken away central uh, central government role uh privatised large parts of what were used to be public institutions uh, and set us up with a mindset that makes it very, very hard to behave in a coordinated fashion and to accept the sort of cutbacks that, ex- that, that get imposed upon you when you get caught up in something like climate change at one extreme or world war at the other. Right. I'm not going to let us finish off today with you once again telling me that it's uh, climate change is a lost cause and we're not going to react to it because, uh, you know, for a multitude of reasons. But you, I, I can understand the point because we would <laughs> relying on the Bank of England uh, it seems to uh, to solve the problem rather than the rather than the government although the government says that we're going to bring, bring, build more wind farms but if we tr- treated it on the same scale as the crisis that we've seen with COVID-19 even next year or the year after let's say COVID-19 somehow has, has vanished from our lives but we said we we're going to spend the same magnitude of government money in that year 
to tackle climate change, and that is done globally, that would have a big impact, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, and that's why I think it potentially could be a training ground for what we need to do for climate change. But again, you have to accept the implications of not doing it. And we've already seen that with the, you know, the capacity to deny the consequences of letting a virus rip um, are bad enough. With climate change, it's even even worse in terms of people's denial that there's any problem. So if you, if you wait to the stage where you yourself have to say, my God, climate change is happening, uh, we've, we've probably destroyed 80% of the productive capacity of the planet at that stage. So it, it, it is... Again, we only learn after a trauma. And when we go into a trauma, then the question of how fast can we respond to that? And again, we've responded too slowly with, with, uh, with COVID, but we do have a get out of, get out of jail card, which is the vaccine. Uh, there's no get out of jail mm. card for climate change. No, there's no vaccine for climate change, absolutely. No, no, there's no vaccine. All right, well, on that very sad note, <laughs> I was hoping Sorry, we'd end I on a high point. I, 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 I'm just going to give up on that now. Uh, all right, well, we'll catch you again soon. Good to talk, Steve. Okay, mate. Bye. It would be nice to think, wouldn't it, that after all this is over, uh, politicians and journalists would, uh, and society at large would look back on all of this and say, well, what have we learned and what's going to change? And can we take any of these learnings forward for how we cope with climate change? Uh, I won't hold my breath on that one. Look, next time we're going to look at another consequence of uh, COVID-19. Although, to be fair, it's a problem that we faced before we went into this pandemic, taming asset prices. We've got low interest rates. Asset prices are reaching unprecedented levels. Uh, are they in a, in a dangerous realm and if so how do we keep them under control when we really can't push interest rates up uh, without screwing the economy uh, we'll look at that next time on the debunking economics podcast with professor steve Keen. i'm phil dobby join me for that one next week see you then a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.